This morning we're going to be uh, reading from Acts 1, and I'm going to read the whole uh, story of the Ascension from Acts 1, uh, beginning at verses 1 to 11, and then we'll be uh, eventually moving on to uh, Psalm 2, talking about Jesus reigning as uh, our King. So before we read from Acts 1, 1 through 11, let's come to God in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come before you at this time in the service and we pray that again you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we read from your word. We pray that you will give us clarity and understanding as we hear the story of Christ's ascension. We pray that we may understand what that means for us today and how we can live our lives in the truth and the knowledge that Jesus is our King. Bless the reading and the proclamation of your word and bless each of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our reigning King, we pray this. Amen. So New Testament, Acts of the Apostles, beginning with Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until a day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid from their sight. A cloud hid him from their sight, rather. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. So we read about the ascension of our Lord from Luke's narrative in the book of Acts. As mentioned, 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples were watching and witnessing their Lord and Savior ascend into the heavens. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder what all this may have been like. I mentioned before that our family likes traveling to Florida once a year and and usually we used to go during spring break when all the kids had the same spring break and then one it was a few years ago that we were excited to find out that NASA arranged to have the space shuttle discovery take off while we were there so here we headed to the Atlantic coast by Cape Canaveral directly across from the launch pad And we were anxiously waiting for that 7.43 p.m. flight time when the space shuttle Discovery would blast into space. And it was right on schedule after having missed several schedules prior to that date. We witnessed a spectacular view 
of the fiery booster rockets lighting up the evening sky. The shuttle glowed and, and shone just so brightly and majestically. And then we just simply continued staring into the heavens for some time until the space shuttle was no longer visible. And you just can't help but think, what an accomplishment, sending humanity into space. But this made me reflect on the account of Jesus' ascension as we read it in Acts 1. Jesus said all that he needed to say to his disciples, and then he was taken up right before their very eyes. And the disciples stood there intently staring into the sky just as we were in awe of the space shuttle launch, how much more the disciples must have been in awe of Jesus Christ, their Lord, their Savior, ascending into the heavens right before their very eyes. I mean, it must have been a spectacular event for the disciples, watching Jesus ascend into heaven. And you've got to think, what an accomplishment. What an amazing accomplishment by God for Jesus to ascend into heaven. To reign as our king. We celebrate the miracle of Jesus Christ ascending from earth to heaven. It's a miracle because Jesus is not just some ghost. He's not this bird with wings. He's not filled with helium. It's not some natural occurrence that occurred. And yet, Jesus ascends into heaven in bodily form. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He bodily rose from the grave. He bodily ascended into heaven. And this is a historical, physical event that we celebrate. The biblical account of the ascension is provided in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, as we read it. And we profess the ascension through the words of the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The benefits of Christ's ascension are, are summarized for us in the Reformed Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, Q&A 49, as we read it earlier. We read that first, Christ pleads our cause to our Father. We have an advocate on our behalf. Secondly, we have our own flesh in heaven. A guarantee that Christ will take us to be with him in heaven. He's there in bodily form. We too one day will be there. And thirdly, the ascension points forward to the coming of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We celebrate that again next week with Pentecost. And then in Q&A 50, we didn't read that one, but Q&A 50 asks about Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And the answer states that the ascension shows that Jesus is the head of the church and that the Father rules all things through Christ. As we read in the words of Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that authority, that kingship, is what we focus on again this morning as we now turn to Psalm 2. Let's turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we read, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains, let us throw off their shackles. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes him in his anger and terrifies him in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, and I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 points prophetically to the coming rule of Jesus. In Psalm 2, we have, we, and we focus on the coronation of the king. We focus on what it means to have Jesus as our reigning king now and forevermore. Because it is at the ascension of Jesus where God the Father decrees the nations to be the inheritance of Jesus and the ends of the earth to be Jesus' possession. It's at the ascension of Jesus where we recognize that Jesus reigns over all the earth, that Jesus is King. We can't underestimate the power and the purpose of Christ's ascension into heaven sitting at God's right hand. We celebrate ascension because heaven celebrates ascension. So we've just read from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is what's known as a a psalm of royalty. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Coronation is a celebration ceremony that marks the inauguration of a king or a queen with power. And it's often marked with uh, the placement of a crown upon his or, or her head and indicating uh, authority and a kingship or a queenship. In Canada or United States, we, we don't have a monarchy as our ruling government. The prime minister and the president, they get sworn into office. We no longer have coronations in our countries. But Great Britain, they continue to have coronations. They don't have them often because the last coronation occurred on, uh, in June of 1953 with Queen Elizabeth II taking reign or ascending upon the throne when she did so in February 1952. Now that was well before my time, but does anybody remember these events? A couple? Yeah. Not to date you or anything. <laughs> but we have a glimpse of the coronation also on Palm Sunday. I mean, we celebrated Palm Sunday just before uh, Easter, right? And, and Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And if you recall on Palm Sunday, all the people, they were hooting, they were hollering, they were laying down their coats, they were putting down their palm branches, they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And they had this hope. And this may have been a hopeful coronation for some people that that was going to happen on that day. But it was a foreshadowing. It was the foreshadowing of the great coronation that was to happen with Christ's ascension. 
So in this psalm, it's in verse 1, where the psalmist asks a rhetorical question. He kind of asks, like, when you think about all that the Lord has done for the nations, all that he's done for his people and others, how can people conspire and rebel against the king? He asks, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of Judah and Israel were representatives of the king that was to come. The Davidic kings represented the one that was to come from the Lord. They were the Lord's anointed ones representing the anointed one. They represented the Messiah who was yet to come. As Isaiah 11 verse 1 states, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Messiah will come from the line of David. I always think it's so cool how the Old and the New Testaments are just so connected to one another. And in these ancient times, the surrounding nations, though, they underestimated the power of the coming king. See, we have hindsight. But they underestimated the coming king. The people didn't care to understand what it meant to have the anointed one. The people didn't care to be under the authority of the Messiah, the Jesus Christ. And there was resistance to the coming of the king. As the psalmist states again in verse 1, people were conspiring. They were plotting against the king. And then the resistance continued on throughout the, the, the Bible. In the Gospel of Luke 19, verse 14, Jesus told a parable in which the people rebelled against the king. Jesus said, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And then the ultimate conspiracy against the king occurred at the cross. At the cross, not only the Gentiles opposed the king, but the Jews were against the king. As Isaiah 53, verse 7 in the Old Testament prophesied centuries earlier, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Doesn't sound like he's talking about a king, but he is. And there is resistance to God's anointed one. That continues on throughout the centuries. And that resistance continues today. And the world not only denies the ascension, making claims that, you know, maybe it was just a parable, or, you know, it was an event that really didn't even occur. And so when one denies the ascension, one also denies the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the world generally does not acknowledge the reign of Jesus. And friends, we cannot ignore the ascension either. I mean, we make a big deal about Christmas, right? We, we said that earlier. We say Merry Christmas, and we make a big deal about Easter. Happy Easter. And we should, okay? But so often we fail to connect the ascension with the birth, with the life, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. St. Augustine, early church father, he stated, I quote, The Ascension Festival is that festival which confirms the grace of all the festivals together, without which the profitableness of every festival would have perished. So basically he's saying, for unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, the nativity, his nativity, his birth would have come to nothing. Unless the Savior ascended into heaven, his passion, his suffering, his death would not have been born fruit for us. 
If the, the Savior didn't ascend into heaven, his most holy resurrection, as Augustine says, would have been useless. You see, the ascension brings everything together. Jesus ascended into the heavens and he reigns on high. God has given all the glory to Jesus because Jesus went the path of the cross. Jesus was obedient to the Father. He went to his death. And Jesus knew that he would rise from the dead. Gospel writer Luke, chapter 9, 51. Well before the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we read, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, so it's talking about his ascension, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. You see, Jesus could face the cross knowing that death would not be the end. Jesus could face the cross knowing that the resurrection would follow. Jesus could face the cross knowing that he will receive a coronation. He could face the cross because Jesus was going to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as we go on reading in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.22, we read that it's Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And yet many people have problems with submission. And again, in, in Psalm 2, we read that too, right? There's those who conspire, they plot against. Many go against the Lord. And even today, rebellion and resistance and denial to Christ's kingships continues to occur. People don't want to submit to the authority of Jesus. But regardless of what choice people make, Christ remains king. And he rules over all. According to our text, there is resistance to God. There's resistance to Jesus. But it also says that any resistance to Jesus is in vain. Conspiring against him is all futile. People who conspire against Jesus are destined to fail. In Acts 5, you can read a story of the apostles going out and doing miracles and wonders all in the name of Jesus. And then the Sanhedrin, many of the, the leaders were thinking, hey, this is not going well. And one of the, the leaders said, hey, you can try to destroy this, but don't worry about it. Because if they're doing things in the name of humanity, it's going to fail. But if they're doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you try, it will not fail. Resistance is in vain because Christ who sits at God's right hand, he's going to come to judge. He will rule over people with an iron scepter as, as we read in Psalm 2. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Jesus will judge those who are against them. They will be destroyed. So if you're not for him, you are against him. So turn our hearts to Jesus ruler of our life, our king. Now this psalm is not to send fear into our hearts. This psalm is to provide us words of hope. Hope. Knowing that nothing anyone can do could remove this king from the throne. The rod of iron means that the rule of Jesus is absolute. Regardless of whether people scoff or rebel or conspire, Jesus is still the Lord and he reigns over all the earth. We have hope because nothing Satan can do 
could remove the king from the throne. Christ's death on the cross broke the hold of Satan over the people. Christ having ascended into heaven affirms that Satan has already been conquered. Christ is king. He is victor. He has won the battle against Satan. Christ governs the affairs of the world for the glory of his Father. People turn our hearts to Jesus, our ruler, our king. And towards the end of the psalm, the psalmist through the Holy Spirit provides people a warning The psalmist states in verse 10 that the king and the rulers have been warned. People of God, we have been warned. And if you don't know the story, then read the scriptures, but I trust that many people know the story. Know the story of what God has done. What he's done for his people. He sent his son, Jesus, to save us from our sins. To offer us forgiveness of all our sins. To give us salvation. Free gift. Remember that story. Know the story. Next week, we celebrate the story again as we celebrate the Lord's Supper as, as one body, as, as God's people. Turn our hearts to Jesus, our ruler, our king. So how are we going to respond to God's grace? Are we going to recognize Christ as our king or are we going to go against his rule? Verse 12, it says, Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse as, Kiss Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode. But if you make a run for your God, you won't regret it. Kiss the Son. Make a run for God and take refuge in Him. Recognize Jesus Christ as King over our life. Give glory and honor to the King. Submit to the King. Obey the King. Respond to God's grace through leading lives of submission, lives of surrender, not lives of rebellion and resistance. Lead lives recognizing that Christ is ruler over all areas of our life. He doesn't just rule the church. Yes, he is the head of the church, but he's also ruler of our personal lives, our families, our marriages, our relationships. He rules over our employment, our education, our politics, our public life. God is part of our lives and ensure that we invite him in and recognize his power and rule over all areas of our life. The psalmist says that we can respond by serving the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And this is not that we need to be afraid of the Lord. We recognize the Lord as our ruler over our life, and we respond in reverence and holy fear. But we also respond rejoicing that the Lord is in control of our life, both of our present life and life eternal. We profess these in, in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, right? When asked the question, what's your only comfort in life and in death? We can confidently answer that I'm not my own. But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Who rules over my life. Jesus reigns over all areas of our life. He reigns over me. He reigns over you. So let's submit to him as our king. The spirit is challenging us to trust in him. To turn to him in faith. We're to take refuge in Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. We can only find safety from God's wrath through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
who reigns now and forevermore. And together we say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for all that you do, for all that you are, for being our Savior, for being our King. Lord, help us to recognize that you alone are our King, that that we serve you alone, and that we praise you in all that we do. Through our work and our school, our home, our church, our friends, our families, may we glorify your name and may we reflect the love of Christ to those around us. May we seek you to know you more and more as our Lord and Savior, risen, ascended, and always present with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can look forward to a hopeful future. We thank you that we are given the promise and the assurance that our ascended Savior will return again and we will remain with him in glory. We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful promises through your word. May your spirit work in us to increase our faith and to prompt us to be witnesses, to share these wonderful promises with those who do not yet know you. May we be bold and further your work through going out and sharing the gospel news. The news that Jesus Christ was born, he lived, he died, he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. The news that Christ reigns and that he will come again. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.